us. Father God, we thank you for the morning. We thank you already for just the sweet time of, Lord, fellowship with one another as your church. We thank you for you, God. The reason we're here, the Lord Jesus Christ, your Holy Spirit, praise your name. And Lord, that is our desire is to continue to offer you worship and praise now through the preaching and teaching of your word. Give me, Father, clarity, conviction, just a, a, an ability, Lord, to de- deliver your word in a, in a way that Lord, it will be, I pray, impactful for all of us. And Lord, give us listening ears as well and hearts that are longing to desire and understand your truth. And Father, to see us put that truth into practice in our daily lives. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. You can turn to Psalm 145. Psalm 145, a psalm of praise of David. The psalmist David writes, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised and great and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works. I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all And his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give you thanks, shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly one shall bless you. And they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. French writer Alexei de Tocqueville After visiting America in 1831, 1831, remember that, said this, quote, I sought for the greatness of the United States in her commodious harbors, her ample rivers, her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. I sought for it in her rich mines, 
Her vast world commerce, her public school system, and in her institutions of higher learning, and it was not there. I looked for the greatness of the United States in her Democratic Congress and her matchless Constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. End quote. From a Frenchman in, what did I say, 1831? And I just can't help but wonder, friends, if these prophetic words have already come true. And that our greatness as a country would or could only be restored if we again believed God to be great as a country. This is the greatness of God, part two, from Psalm 145. Just to give you a brief historical context that we went over last week in in preaching the Psalm 145, it was written over a thousand year period. And really this, well, all the Psalms are, are dialogues, dialogues between God and man. And they speak to the heart, they speak to the human condition, they speak to daily life and 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 difficulties and trials and sufferings, but praises and and thanksgivings and love for the Lord. They are songs and they are poems and they are prayers. And they they are, are words of worship unto the Lord. They became like a hymn book for ancient Israel. And of course, the a majority of the Psalms were written by David, but there were others involved as well, including his son Solomon and even one written by Moses. Psalm 145 as a Psalm of David, and we often see that, a Psalm of David, that's part of the Hebrew text. This actually says a Psalm of praise of David. <clears throat> and the way I'm presenting this, this psalm to you is really by focusing on the attributes of God, God's character that we see in this tremendous piece of writing. And of course, this is coming from David who knew well the attributes of God because he is a man described as being after God's own heart. That is the love that the Lord had for him, for David loving God. In addition, we are also privy in the psalm to David's responses. He, he, he launches out these attributes and these incredible characteristics of God, and then he tells us what kind of response that causes in him. And friends, these responses should be our responses. These messages are all about encouraging you. I I wanted us to be encouraged. And especially as we go into the Christmas season of who God is, his, his just total greatness. And, and won't that just draw us even closer to him, closer to his son and going into then the, the Christmas holidays that we would be even more focused on the greatness and glory of God through his son as a baby 
and all that went on to bring him into this world. And that's it. We want to grow close with the Lord and, and we want to, you know, know him. And, and it, it stands to reason that that the more we get to know somebody and, and who they are and what makes them tick, the closer we will grow to them. Now, you might be thinking, well, sometimes, you know, I, I start to get to know somebody and frankly, I just don't like them. I don't like what I see. You know, maybe there's been plenty of people that you started to get to know only to end up not liking them all that much. And therefore, well, I didn't grow close to them. But fortunately, that is not the way it is with God. For everything about God, friends, is deeply wonderful, tremendously marvelous, and altogether amazing. I'm so glad we sang that song, The Love of God. Love that. Great words, great truths about who God is. Frankly, there is nothing not to love about God. Amen? Amen. So Christian, as you learn about him, of course you can't help but be drawn closer to him into a deeper relationship with him. And as this happens, you love him all the more and you desire to grow in Christ-likeness and in obedience. And you, you start to more organically even understand what his will for you is. And then you naturally want to put that will into practice. Now, as we got underway last week, we considered our first three attributes. And we're doing so in the form of declarations declarations of David as to who God is. And we saw his response to each one, knowing that this again should be our response. The first was to declare God's name, declaring God's name. We learned David uses God. He uses uh, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, meaning Yahweh, and that his name is holy. And the responses to his name is that we should extol God, we should raise him up, lift him high, and we should praise him. And we asked ourselves, how, how bold am I at de- just simply declaring the name of the Lord? And how bold am I doing it outside these walls? It's easy, right, to come to church and greet each other and see each other and we love it. And we, hey, praise God. Oh, that's great. And, oh, you know, we're, we're quick to mention God's name. But how is it when we're, again, away from from the the comfort of our church walls. How quick am I to offer him praise and thanksgiving in even public settings? And then secondly, we had the declaration of God's kingship and the fact that he is king. And and, and we we want to speak of the glory of his kingdom. And, And we tossed out a couple of questions like, how is Jesus king over your life? How is he king Day in and day out, do you obediently submit to his will for you? Do you live daily, even with an eternal perspective? And then thirdly, it was declaring God's greatness. Just simply his greatness. Great is the Lord. Greatly shall he be praised. And, and, and David telling of God's greatness. And, and we asked, do we contemplate the greatness of God? Do we think much about his awesome acts, do we speak of his greatness to others? And now we move on to our fourth declaration this morning. Our fourth declaration, declaring God's works and acts. And we see this primarily in verses 4 to 6, 9 to 10, and verse 12. 
Look at verse 4. One generation shall praise your works to another. And of course, God's works are his deeds, right? That which he does, what he makes. And this can be his creation. It can be how he upholds all things by the word of his power. It can be his intervention into human history, his miracles, his love, grace, his tender mercies, his forgiveness and salvation. And what do we do with these things? He says, pass them on from generation to generation. Why do you think God was always having the Israelites set up memorials, right? They went through uh, the the River Jordan when the Jordan, you know, separated. And they set up a memorial, stones there, even in the middle on the, the dry ground there in the middle of the Jordan, right? And then beyond, they would set up these memorials so that they would remember and so that they would pass on the great and mighty acts of God to others, to the next generation, to their children and their children's children. And you know what? Some parents today kind of have that mindset. I'm sure you've met them out there. I'm sure nobody in here, but, but it's, it's that mindset of, well, <clears throat> you know, we don't want to influence our children right now. We, we want them to get a little bit older and then they can make their own decision, their own choices about, you know, God or religion and things like that. Eh, wrong! Wrong! Something just splattered. I don't know what I just... Oh, there went the communion cup. There we go. I'm going to need another one, guys. <laughs> well, now I got a little, uh, a little uh, uh, burgundy hue on me. Uh. Man, you just never know what's going to come out, you know? <laughs> At least it wasn't here when I might have hit the you know, first few rows, that kind of thing. But no, that's... Okay, turn to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. Let's see this with our own eyes. I know this will be a familiar passage to many. Deuteronomy 6. Beginning in verse 4, because friends, that, 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 that's bunk. It, it just is. Saying that, well, now we'll wait and let them figure it out on their own kind of thing. And it's not biblical. So don't buy into it, parents. Don't you dare. As the Shema right here says. Shema means the here, hero Israel, right? In Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4, hear, O Israel. This is Moses, right? Speaking to the people of Israel. There, before they, they uh, uh, crossed over uh, the Jordan into the uh, promised land. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. This, uh, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. Now, here's where we get to this part about parents. You shall teach them diligently. To your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Meaning how often, folks? Always. All the time. From when? The time they were born until whenever, right? You never stop. You never stop. He finishes, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I'll tell you what, that sure doesn't sound like, um, you know, let your children decide what they want to believe when they're old enough. All right? Hogwash. Get over it. Right? We teach them and preach to them from the time they're born. In the womb even. You pass on with praise and thanksgiving God's works to your children. Always, always, always. Amen? 
Amen. Look at the second half. Go back to Psalm 145, second half of verse 5. He says, and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. I will meditate. Wonderful there, meaning marvelous, surpassing, extraordinary. And that's the idea here. Things that are beyond one's power or things that are difficult to do or things that might be even difficult to understand. And we stands to reason that God's works are so far beyond our power. They are exceedingly difficult for us if we were able to do them at all, and outside our ability to even fully understand how he does them. Whether that's God speaking his creation into existence, or carrying an ark of eight through a worldwide flood, or providentially using Joseph to save all of Israel, or raising his very own son from the dead, causing his own Holy Spirit to indwell those who believe, and then for believers to have our minds renewed so that we can be conformed into the image of Christ. And these are just some of the the biggie things. The biggie things, right? What about those wonderful works that seem smaller, maybe much more insignificant, The Lord causing you to to hear a message from his word just right at that time in your life when you needed it, right? You just absolutely needed it. Or or the encouragement that maybe he has brought to you through a song that you've heard on the radio or or the the helping you find your your car keys after you've prayed for him, right? Or the blessing of a brother or sister calling, writing, visiting, texting, praying for you. All of this to ask, what is not wonderful about the works of God, great and small? Why should we not meditate on them, contemplate them, think deeply about them? Let God's wonderful works fill every pore of your being. Absorb them, friends, like a sponge. Meditating is is like marinating, right? The longer you do it, the more the flavor just saturates and and sinks in. Last year, a a brother from here and and myself, we we, we prepared, I might say, some amazing tri-tip, right, for, for one of our fellowship groups. He marinated it, and then I put it in the smoker, and we smoked it. And uh, he marinated it for days, days, right? So when it was all said and done, the meat is just so tender, and it's so tasty because it's just infused with flavor. And the point here is, friends, is that when you meditate on God's wonderful works, they fill every nook and cranny of your soul like melted butter on a Thomas's English muffin, right? All right, enough of the food analogies. I'm sorry. I see people walking in with all their treats to the different fellowship groups. I'm like, oh, I'm going there. Oh, I'm going there, you know? But the point is, when you meditate on God's wonderful works, again, they fill you up. They fill your soul. His wonderful works, then, they stay with you. They aren't easily forgotten. They keep you in awe. 
of him. They keep you worshiping him. They keep you bowed down before him. Now we're going to talk more about meditating in a few minutes. All right. We're going to press on for the time being here. Verse nine. Verse nine. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly one shall bless you. And, and, and what do we see here about God's works or his deeds, but that his mercy and compassion is over them all. In other words, every work that God does is for the benefit of his creation. Just think about that for a minute. And yet we might ask, do we even deserve this benefit? Of course not. Of course not. As Spurgeon writes about this verse. I have made myself by sin, the vilest of all creatures. I am become worse than the beast that perish as vile as a worm, as loathsome as a toad by reason of the venomous corruption that is in my heart and my woeful contrariety to the nature of a holy God. But God's mercy is like the firmament spread over all this lower world. And every infirm creature, meaning feeble or weak, partakes more or less of its influence according to its exigence, meaning need and capacity. End quote. And furthermore, in verse 10, verse 10 tells us that all of God's work shall give thanks to God. And we, as his godly ones, shall bless God for them. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. And in Psalm 98, verse 4, we see creation, creation crying out, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing for joy before the Lord. Or as God says through the prophet Isaiah, the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Amen. Psalm 103 verse 22. Bless the Lord all you of his excuse me bless the lord all you works of his in all places of his dominion bless the lord oh my soul not only do his godly ones bless him because of his works but the rest of his non-human creation praises his works and gives him thanks verses 4 and 6 and 12 of Psalm 145, speak of the acts of God. Verse 4, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. While verse 12 says to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts. Mighty denoting strength. Strength. While verse 6 says men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. Awesome in the sense of to cause astonishment to inspire with reverence and godly fear and of course referring to the incredible power of god that brought these acts about that brought them into existence 
And speaking of power, verse 11 says that God's godly ones, that would be you and I, we shall talk of your power. Makes me think of Isaac Watts' great hymn. I had this running through my head this week. I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. We sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. I think someone needs to uh, volunteer that one tonight at Pie and Praise, okay? Deuteronomy 10 and verse 21 has Moses telling the Israelites, He is your praise and He is your God who has done these great and awesome things For you, which your eyes have seen. Again, all to benefit his creation. And you think, well, what were the things that they would have seen? Their eyes, right? How about things like the ten plagues even? God leading them as a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, parting the Red Sea and them walking through on dry land, providing the manna and the quail from heaven, even water from a rock. Or Psalm 66 and verse 3. Say to God, how awesome are your works because of the greatness of your power. Your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. Consider the walls of Jericho, friends, and how they came a-tumbling down. Friends, there is an overarching point as to why David is bringing up God's praiseworthy, wonderful, merciful, mighty, powerful, awesome works and acts. And that is so that you and I, you and I would declare them. So that we would make them known. So that we'd speak of them to others, bringing much praise and thanksgiving to God. And this is what Paul used even as an introduction to his gospel. Uh, In Acts 17, verse 24, has Paul on Mars Hill in Athens. And he starts off with this, right? He goes back to God's creation. The God who made the world and all things in it. That's how he starts. By declaring God's works and God's mighty acts. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life, and breath, and all things. I love that. I love how he starts with creation. And when you're looking to share the gospel with others, friends, I mean, how about using some of these things? How about using God's wonderful works and his, his mighty acts, his acts of creation, and what, what these people that you're trying to minister to and share the gospel with, the things that they can actually look at and see while you're talking with them out there in the world, the things that they can already know about God because also it was already put inside them, right? These can serve as, as easy inroads for a gospel conversation. Yeah, who do you, you just look around. Who do you think made all this, right? Well, the Big Bang. Ah, oh, really? I mean, is that, is that, is that, does it take any more faith to believe in, in a God who could speak these things into existence versus some kind of explosion that then caused all these, et cetera, et cetera, right? And then you, you just find those inroads to be able to talk about the Lord. 
And then you can get to that place where you then you can tell him of some more of God's awesome and mighty acts, like the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, from the grave. Tell people how they can be forgiven of their sin and saved unto eternal life because of the mighty power of God in bringing his son back to life. And when God does save them, then you tell them that this is a wonderful work, a mighty act unto itself. That it is indeed a miracle, their salvation. Friends, I encourage you, take stock of some of God's works and acts, and what an appropriate week to do it, a week of thanksgiving. Think of the things that you've read about in Scripture that are there in the Bible, uh, things that you've seen and heard him do throughout human history and even in your life. And then ask yourself, do I declare the wonderful works and mighty acts of God? And, and, and whose benefit do you declare it for? In other words, do you wake up and just give God praise for his mighty acts? You should, right? And should we do it here in our worship service? Amen, and we have. Praise God. But do I do it out there? How quick am I to do it out there? Am I so kind of fearful? Because, man, our, our society's changing. It's changing, and they're not so kind to Christians anymore. Yeah, but people in America aren't getting their throats cut either, right? For the gospel. So I think we need to just pull up, you know, Get, get ourselves standing firm, standing strong. Next, number five. Declaring God's abundant goodness. Declaring His abundant goodness. We see this primarily in verses 7 and 9. Verse 7 says, They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. And then we get down to verse 9. It just says, The Lord is good to all Now, first off, how is God's goodness to be understood? The Hebrew word has many meanings, depending upon how it's used. Here, as a noun, it can refer to God's graciousness, God's fairness, God's welfare, God's provision. A.W. Tozer, in his uh, knowledge of the holy, defines it, quote, as this, that which disposes God to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. That God is good is taught or implied on every page of the Bible must be received as an article of faith as impregnable as the throne of God. End quote. As an attribute, friends, he is altogether good and he is good all the time. And his goodness was first seen in his creation Think about that, right? We had five goods. Good, 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 good. And one what? Very good. Very good. God's goodness is extended not just to human beings, but to the whole of his creation, including animals, plants, and planets. And God is good in the pleasures that we receive from him. Food is not just a means to an end, but it is something that has texture right it has flavor it was created to be 
enjoyed. We pleasure in seeing God's goodness in the colors and scent of a flower, to hear with our ears the babbling of a brook or singing birds. The babbling of a brook is funny because, you know, we left Weaverville. We had the, I think I've told you, we had a brook just, you know, down at the bottom of our property. We could leave our windows open at summertime. And that was what you heard until my wife's like, no, I need a fan on. And we put the fan in the window and I couldn't hear the brook anymore. That's okay. I got the 210 freeway now. Just man a half a block away. The babbling of the 210 puts me to sleep at night. Actually, I love it. I love it. (laughs) To return to Isaac Watts' song, verse 2 sings this. We sing the goodness of the Lord that filled the earth with food. He formed the creatures with his word and then pronounced them good. Lord, how your wonders are displayed where we turn our eyes. If we survey the ground, we tread or gaze upon the skies. (coughs) Excuse me. We've experienced God's goodness with the fact that he has not, not sentenced us to an eternity in hell, but an everlasting life in heaven, compliments of the goodness of his son. And friends, just because there is suffering and sorrow in the world does not mean that God is not good. And in fact, it was Man, it was us who invited this suffering and sorrow by choosing to sin against our creator God. But because God is a just God, the consequences of this sin came into the world. And of course, it infects the whole of creation, including every human being. There is none righteous, not even one, for all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. Thankfully God sent his son. The Lord Jesus Christ. To come and intervene for us. To take that sin of ours upon himself. To go to the cross in our place. To die just a horrendous death on our behalf. So that we could be forgiven of our sin. Went into the ground. But three days later resurrected from the dead. So that we too would know that we will be resurrected from the dead. If we would put our faith and trust in him. That when we die we will be with him in spirit. Until our bodies are gloriously resurrected unto eternal life. Again if you would believe. Repent and believe Jesus said. In fact, when God righteously judges and gives sentence to all who have hated him, this will be the ultimate act of his goodness. In verse 7 of Psalm 145, David says that both he and those who speak and tell of God's awesome acts and greatness are to eagerly utter the memory of God's abundant goodness. And of course, David David might have had in mind the goodness of God when, when God helped him defeat the giant Goliath in front of the army of the Philistines. Or it might have been as the ark was returned to Israel, David saw the goodness of God. Ruth, Ruth would have spoke of God's goodness and bringing her out of Moab and introducing her to Boaz. 
the Israelites would have uttered the memory of God's goodness and giving them victory over city after city in the promised land. And, and those in the generation before them would have shared all that God did to bring them out of that slavery in Egypt and deliver them through the desert. Abraham would have offered the memory of God's goodness and in, 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 in God giving him back the life of his son, Isaac, Noah, and his family would have recounted the flood and being safely delivered through it. And Adam and Eve would have uttered the memory of God's abundant goodness by the fact that God spared their lives and only drove them out of the garden. Royal British naval officer turned faithful missionary, Alan Gardner, experienced many physical difficulties and hardships throughout his service to the Savior. Despite his troubles, he said this, quote, While God gives me strength, failure will not daunt me, end quote. In 1851, at the age of 57, he died of disease and starvation while serving on Picton Island at the southern tip of South America. And when his body was found, his diary actually lay nearby and it bore the record of hunger and thirst and wounds and loneliness. And then the last entry in his little book showed the struggle of his his shaking hand as he tried to write legibly. It read, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. End quote. That was it. I mean, it would it would seem easier to eagerly utter to others about God's abundant goodness when we have been blessed with much, right? And yet, do we? Do we? Do we eagerly, eagerly, desiringly, you know, wanting to tell our family or our friends or our neighbors or our co-workers? Do we eagerly want to tell them about the abundant goodness of God? Well, what about when things aren't so good in your life? When life's challenges and afflictions and trials are not just knocking at the door, they're breaking it down. Do you still then eagerly speak of the abundant goodness of God? Tell of His wonderful works and mighty acts. And truth be told, To do so then in those moments might even have a greater impact on those that you are telling. When they see that you are suffering and afflicted, and yet you still, like Alan Gardner, claim, proclaim the goodness of God. Think of the effect that will have on them. And then lastly, from verse 9, the Lord is good to all. This is common grace, friends. Common grace, grace for all the world. As Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 45, the context there is loving your enemies. He says, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, friends, God sends his blessings of goodness to all living creatures, including every human being, be they friend or foe of God. And remember that at one time you and I were enemies of God. And yet he showed you and I his abundant goodness by giving us life and breath and sustaining you even while you were in open rebellion. 
rebellion against him. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And wouldn't it be awesome, just so awesome, to point out to believers how God has been abundantly good to them? You know, I always, I always hope that, pray, when people ask for, for prayer, like on our prayer sheet or what have you, for, for supplication from God for the needs of unsaved family and friends, that those same folks that made those requests will also have the opportunity to go back to those people, those, those folks that, that, that they had offered the prayers for, and, and share exactly how the Lord has answered their prayers and indeed been good to them. Consider how God is good to all, friends. And think about how he has been good to you. Do you and I eagerly declare his abundant goodness even when things aren't necessarily so good? Can you use his goodness to share the gospel? Well, lastly for today, number six, declaring God's glorious splendor and majesty. Declaring God's glorious splendor and majesty. We see this in verse 5. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Also translated, on the glorious majesty of your splendor. Whichever you might prefer. They both amount to the same thing. We see something similar in verse 12 where David says that he wants to make known to the sons of men the glory of the majesty of God's kingdom. And we might have included this uh, last week in our declaration of God as king. But there's, there's more to his glorious splendor and majesty than just his kingship in glorious that word we again see that word is it means heavy it's it's used for heaviness weightiness in ascribing glory to god and we we already meditated on god's wonderful works well now it's the glorious splendor of his majesty that we are to meditate on that we are to think deeply about splendor. Splendor being the same word, actually, that's translated as majesty back in verse 12. And then majesty here in verse 5 being a synonym with the meanings of splendor and vigor and glory and honor, right? So, so they're, they're very similar and they're often used together, these two words, splendor and majesty. For instance, in Psalm 45 and verse 3, God is armed for battle in splendor and majesty. And in Psalm 99 and verse 6, it says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. And Psalm 104 and verse 1 says that God is clothed with splendor and majesty. And in Psalm 111 verse 3, that his work is splendid and majestic. And speaking on the glorious splendor of God's majesty. And so the last verse doesn't feel left out. We've got to include the third stanza of the great hymn from, from uh, Watts. He says, there's not a plant or flower below, but makes your glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from your throne. While all that borrows life from you is ever in your care. And everywhere that you can be, your God 
you, God, are present there. And here's the thing, friends. Earthly kings, they might have acquired glorious, splendid, majestic kingdoms and palaces and royal courts and land and resources and fine clothes and expensive furnishings, maybe exotic spices and silver and gold and jewels. And they might have gotten those things through an inheritance or by conquering other kingdoms or maybe even somehow earning it. But you see, the glorious splendor and majesty ascribed to God is simply part of his nature. I mean, it is who he is. He has always been that. He didn't acquire it. He didn't work for it. He didn't earn it or inherit it. He didn't take it. It is simply a part of his character, his attributes. He is altogether glorious, splendid, and majestic. And I was thinking, maybe, maybe these, these three things are almost the sum of his attributes, right? You think of God's attributes. I looked this up. Wikipedia, for instance, lists 27 of God's attributes. I thought that was pretty cool, actually. A.W. Tozer contemplates 20 of them in the knowledge of the holy. A.W. Pink in his classic Attributes of God focuses on 16. And these are all the biggies, you might say, right? Certainly there are attributes that, that belong to the secret things of God, the things and attributes that we don't even know that maybe we'll become privy to when we're with him. And of course, some of these attributes, you know them. God's love and grace and mercy and justice and wrath and patience and goodness and faithfulness and holiness his sovereignty, his immutability, meaning the fact that he doesn't change, his supremacy, eternality, infinitude, self-existence, self-sufficiency, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, transcendence, imminence, kindness and gentleness, just to name a few. In other words, when we consider God to be all of these things, this certainly amounts to him being glorious, does it not? And splendid. Majestic, you bet it does. And what again are we to do with this incredible knowledge of God that we are being blessed with? He tells us, Meditate on it, meditate on it. David was good at doing this, friends. Just real briefly, uh, turn to Psalm 139. If you're in 135, just a few pages, go to Psalm 139, where we can see how David thought deeply about the glory, splendor, and majesty of God. And, And while David received direct revelation from God, I think it's also true that he came to these conclusions because he did meditate so incredibly on the truths of God, his wonderful works, his mighty acts, He kicks it off by saying, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up and you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. And then David goes on to share in verses 7 to 12 how he's been profoundly contemplating God's spirit and his presence in relation to himself, especially God's um, omniscience, his all-knowing and his omnipresence being everywhere, and how God will always care for and lead David even through life's darkest moments. Then look at verse 13 where we see how David has meditated long and well on God's works, namely his creation of David from the womb, 
womb to tomb, ordaining all of David's days. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh, wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was none of them. Friends, David thought intensely, deeply about these things. He dwelled upon the wonderful works of God. And I love what he says next in verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me. Oh God, how vast is the sum of them. If I, should, if I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. I mean, this is a man who has meditated deeply on the glory, splendor, and majesty of God. And here's, here's the thing, friends. Meditating on God's attributes and His works is only good so far as this leads us to action. Even if it's simply just praising Him. In his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, Don Whitney defines meditation as, quote, thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture for the purposes of understanding, application, and prayer. End quote. I think he's exactly right. As the Lord himself said to Joshua after Moses' death and how Joshua would now lead the people into the promised land, quote, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. This is why Psalm 1 tells us that for a blessed person, their delight is in the law of the Lord. And, excuse me, in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Because he's meditating on it. As Whitney says, quote, meditation should ultimately lead to application. End quote, and I concur. This is what Scripture says teaches. Now, just an FYI as we wrap this up here this morning, meditation on Scripture, friends, can be accomplished in a myriad of ways. We can meditate on Scripture by studying a text, right, or, or repeating a passage, even memorizing it, maybe rewriting the passage down in your own words. Look for how to apply it. Pray through it. Don't rush it. Don't rush it. Guilty of that sometimes. Meditate on a text in order to discern its application for you. And, and do the same thing with the glory, splendor, and majesty of God. First, considering the scriptures, but also taking into account what you see and, and hear and know to be true about God and His wonderful works out there in the world. Things that you see even every day, including your very own salvation and the salvation of others. In fact, we're going to give you an opportunity to meditate on the glorious splendor of His majesty.
right now as we kind of switch gears and and celebrate communion. Well, not really switch gears, just just contemplating and meditating and thinking on God's glory and God's splendor and God's majesty as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.